I wanted to create a forum where people can see that there are these very varied experiences that people can have with uh, casual hookups from the most amazing sex ever to the worst sex ever to many blah kind of meh experiences that, that also make up casual sex. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. One of the things about living in a so-called developing country is that that country is actively developing. You might hear construction noise <laughs> outside of my window as I record this. I, I try to avoid that if I can, but it seems to be inescapable today. And I want to get this out on time, so I, I will keep this intro very brief. But suffice it to say, I'm really excited to share today's episode. Dr. Jana Vranglova is a New York City-based sex researcher who studies casual sex, non-monogamy, and sexual orientation. She has a PhD in developmental psychology from Cornell and currently teaches human sexuality related courses as an adjunct professor at New York University. In addition, Dr. Jana is the founder of the Casual Sex Project, a forum where people can share their experiences with casual sex, and she's also the co-host of the tremendous Science of Sex podcast. Her work has been featured in Playboy, The New Yorker, Vice, and about a hundred other publications. She's, uh, she's all over the web if you Google her name. Dr. Jana believes that nothing is one size fits all when it comes to sex, and I agree with her. That's why I wanted to talk to her today. In today's episode of Humans in Love, we talk about how casual sex is impacting all of us, who benefits from casual sex and who might not, the complicated cultural politics of Me Too and consent, Dr. Jana's fascinating background growing up in Macedonia, uh, and a whole lot more. I had a lot of fun talking to Dr. Jana today, and I think you're also really going to enjoy today's interview. Before we get into it, I'll remind you that ratings and reviews are absolutely crucial to any podcast success, including this one. So if you're digging the show, please give Humans in Love a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. It would mean a lot to me, and send me an email if you do. Um, I will respond with happy emoticons or I'll do something nice. It'll you, Ratings and reviews, are they mean a lot. And when I stumble upon them, they always put a big smile on my face. So yes, please leave a rating and review. Without any further ado, let's get right into it. I hope you enjoy my chat with Dr. Jana. Dr. Jana, welcome to Humans in Love. Thank you for having me. And first off, I am pronouncing that correct, right? Jana. You, you are, yes. A lot of people get it wrong, but you got it right. Excellent. Yes, I like people whose name starts with Z. That's uh, always a good thing for me. The first <laughs> question... Z and Z today. Absolutely. No, Z and Z. I'm Canadian, so... <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. Well, well. That's quite all right. No problem. The first question I have for you, it might sound a bit basic, but I, I think it would be worthwhile. I, I was thinking about the term casual sex, which a lot of your research revolves around. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I actually, I'm not crazy about that term 
because it kind of implies, to my mind at least, it implies that casual sex is always very casual. When I think that you can have casual sex that can be quite meaningful. But anyway, when we talk about casual sex, what do we mean? Or, or what particularly do you mean by that term when you use that term? I agree that it's not the perfect word for that, that describes all of the interactions that would fall into that. And in fact, some people do think of very, very, very casual types of interactions when they think about casual sex. I use the term as imperfect as it is to describe an umbrella kind of as an umbrella term to describe a broader range of interactions, all of which are uh, you know, put, put together by the fact that the people who are having sex with each other at the time are not in a long-term committed relationship. And so defined th this broadly, you can think of it as a very wide range of things that can go from, you know, the one night stand with someone that you just met right? A random stranger on the street that you ended up hooking up in a, in a, uh, in a dark alley, uh, whose name you might not even know, right? All the way to say something like friends with benefits that you have been uh, meeting and you know for for years potentially where uh, you have both the sexual component but also a non-sexual friendship that exists between the two people. The, the only thing missing there would be that kind of romantic commitment to being a couple and being... Uh, building a life together. And, um, you know, for many people, that also means the lack of exclusivity, sexual romantic exclusivity, and so on. And there's certainly, you know, once you get to that point of these friends with benefits, <clears throat> you get into that gray area of, well, how casual is this really? And, um, and, and I agree that a lot of these interactions may not be very casual in the sense that uh, you might have a certain amount of uh, emotional connection to that person. You might feel a fair amount of passion and intimacy with that person. You may uh, feel some level of commitment to continuing a friendship with that person or, or um, a, a continued casual, non-romantic uh, kind of a, a relationship. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot that can go in there. And, and the different types of casual sex and the different levels of these components of intimacy, passion, uh, emotional connection and, and commitment, all of those, you can think of them as, as existing on, on a continuum. And depending on how much of each of these components is, is present in any one of these relationships, they can feel very different. They can have different consequences. They can be differently satisfying uh, to different people and so on. Right. I really Sorry, that was a very long answer. <laughs> no, not at all. No, not at all. This is a long form podcast and we like long answers. I, I want to, I have about a million questions for you and I want to dig into your research <laughs> as we go. But before we do, I, I think I mentioned to you, I heard you on Chris Ryan's podcast uh, and you talked a little mm -hmm. bit about this, but I'd, I'd like to know more. Where did your interest in studying sex and in particular casual sex come from? <laughs> I, I am, I've always been interested in sexuality and it's partly because I was always sexually precocious and outside the norm in many ways in my desires and behaviors as I was growing up. And I was growing up in Macedonia, which is a small country in the Eastern European um, kind of part of the world. And 
it was always, you know, sexuality always seemed to be something that everybody wanted and desired and, and uh, obviously engaged in to some extent, yet there was so much taboo around it, so much uh, suppression. And, uh, and so that, that ambivalence that we all feel about sexuality was absolutely fascinating to me. So I wanted to spend my life kind of studying that and engaging with that intellectually in trying to understand how people navigate this world of, of sex, especially when their desires and interests, uh, sexual interests and desires fall outside the norm of what is considered acceptable in their, uh, in their societies and casual sex is one of the things that I study as well as uh, consensual non-monogamy, open relationships, and also non-heterosexuality, which in some ways were all parts of, of sexual interests and desires that that I had and, and had experiences with. And also I experienced a lot of people around me <clears throat> struggling in some way, shape, or form with those kinds of desires and how to incorporate them in a healthy way in their lives. So... That's how that happened. Could you paint the picture a little more? I mean, I'm really curious about what it would be like to grow up in that society back in what I would imagine the nineties or something. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. was there, did, did you feel shame around either your sexuality or even just the topic in general growing up? So it's, it was an interesting contrast in some ways to what most people in the U S and maybe Canada to some extent would be, uh, familiar with because it was, you know, a lot of the shame uh, around such sexuality that people feel in these parts of the world in Northern America comes from religion, right? Well, Macedonia was an atheist country or Yugoslavia, the entire Macedonia used to be part of this larger country of Yugoslavia. It was one of the republics in Yugoslavia and Yugoslavia, as many of the other socialist countries was fully atheist. And so there was no religion at all to have that shame uh, around any, any sexuality. But there was still, it was a relatively patriarchal culture with double sexual standards where women obviously were not uh, expected to have nearly as much sexual experience or uh, interest as men were, where homosexuality or any kind of uh, deviation from complete heterosexuality was not uh, was not uh, accepted and was very much looked down upon. It was still, at the time, illegal, where there was certainly no discussion of anything other than uh, uh, fully monogamous uh, heterosexual relationships. Uh, and so there was, it was less shame and it was more just com complete ignorance and, and, um, I don't know, feeling like if you have these 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 interests or desires, you're just weird. You're weird. <laughs> like nobody has them. What do you mean you have them? <laughs> and uh, and and I don't know. So maybe that's how I experienced that. Maybe, maybe other people would have felt a lot more shame. I also tend to be a very thick-skinned person for some reason. I think probably biologically, I, I ended up being that way. So uh, I don't I, I don't feel it very very kind of, it doesn't affect me as much as it might affect, might affect other people. I certainly felt that, you know, people would, would, uh, would judge, uh, but it was, I felt it was more of that, like, Oh, you're just so weird. Or if you had those things or desires, you'd be weird. Did you find like-minded people in Macedonia when you were growing up? Like, did you manage to connect with some people who were on a similar wavelength? 
Yeah, yeah, I I did, especially with uh, there was a fledgling gay community when I was I guess just coming out of high school and start starting college, and I went to college there. So uh, that was that was the time that Nasrani became had already became become an independent country, and the first initial um, uh, kind of civil society. Uh, mechanisms were being put in place. And so some of the first non-governmental, non-for-profit organizations that were uh, formed to work, you know, for uh, LGBT rights uh, started to, 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 to exist. And I kind of got involved with some of them. I did some research for them. And that, that's what my undergraduate thesis was about, was uh, kind of gay, lesbian identity development. And so at least on, the, on that level, I did get to meet some some people who were somewhat more sexually uh, experimental and open and uh, accepting. So, yeah. What's what's the situation like now in Macedonia? Like when you go home, is the country basically unrecognizable to the the one you grew up in or or what's the scene there like, like now? Oh God, uh, I, I don't go back very often. So I don't know. I've, I've been living in the U S for 12, 13 years almost. And so I've, really uh, not I, I don't I just don't know uh, I think I mean things have changed obviously gay rights have become a lot more visible and we also did have a, 10 years of a pretty conservative right-wing government that came on uh, in power when I left the year I left or something like that and so there was a bit of a you know stagnation in that process but now there is a more more uh liberal i guess more progressive government uh that just came power a couple of years ago so i think things are are moving uh, i mean in some like in some other ways like sexual and reproductive health uh, that was always an uh, abortion was always legal in macedonia and then the new government the more right-wing government made it illegal all of a sudden or made it very 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 difficult to obtain you know, lots of hoops to jump through in order to get it. And so some things really went backwards in some way. And then religion was introduced. That's another thing that that happened that uh, when socialism failed, that people all of a sudden started becoming religious or refound religion. And so there was a lot of of that that came onto the scene as well um, in, in, the, in those intervening 10 or so years. So, yeah, there have been a lot of changes. Yeah, you'll have to forgive me. I'm in this period now where I'm I'm kind of obsessed with with the post Soviet Union sphere and all the things that are that happened mm-hmm. there in the '90s, and it's really interesting stuff. But uh, yeah, for, perhaps that's another podcast. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> so you would you say your most of your research then centers around casual sex? Is that is that fair to say? Casual sex and non heterosexuality. And I'm really curious about when you started actually digging into the academic literature surrounding this topic. Has there been a lot of research done in any field on casual sex uh, when you you started? When I first started out, when I got to Cornell and became a grad student there and started looking at the literature and casual sex, there was some not, but not, not a lot uh, over the, but somehow over those next, five years or so, there there was more and more and more. And now there's a plethora of research from uh, psychologists, from sociologists, from, you know, clinical uh, kind of uh, people. There's been a lot more interest in that. And so that literature has just ballooned uh, over the over the last 12 years or so. But yeah, at, at that time, there wasn't a lot. 
and what did exist. And I was particularly interested because, you know, there's obviously a lot of different ways that you can approach that question. So there were some uh, studies looking into why people might be having these desires, why people might be interested in uh, casual sex as opposed to long-term romantic relationships. And then there was the other side of the equation, which was, is this something that is harming people, right? Is this harmful to their mental and physical health? So I was more kind of my own research was more on the other side of the, of the mental and uh, social physical well-being side of things. So uh, there were, and in, in both, uh, in both aspects, there has been quite a bit of research done lately. And if you had to say lately or over the past decade or so, what are the main questions driving your research? Like, what are you really trying to, to understand better? Well, my, my own research was always driven by, you know, is this harmful to people? Is this behavior har- harmful to people? And who is it harmful for or how is it harmful for? So the, as far as that camp's concerned on the harmfulness of casual sex, when I, when I started doing the research, it was very, very black or white. It was very simplistic in the way the research was being done. People would get sp- split into, the, the participants would get split into the people who've had casual sex and the people who haven't had casual sex. And then you would measure, let's say, depression or self-esteem or, or something like that. And then you would just compare whether one is higher than the other. And to me, that was way too simplistic because, as we talked about, the casual sex is very, very wide, and there's so many different kinds of experiences that can go into that. There's so many different kinds of people that can end up engaging in these kinds of experiences. And so, to me, asking this very general, simplistic question of, is casual sex bad for you, was pointless because I was absolutely convinced that some types of casual sex, for some people, were harmful. And then other types of casual sex experiences and for other types of people were not harmful. In fact, may be, may be beneficial. And so I wanted to introduce that more complex kind of analysis into the, into the equation where we looked at you know, maybe how you go about casual sex or what kinds of casual sex experiences you're having or what kind of person you are. And that for some of these you might have different kinds of uh, uh, mental and physical health outcomes than for other. Yeah, and, and that's I think that's the main reason I appreciate what you're doing because I, I too, I see a lot of binary thinking in discussions like this mm. and a lot of people who are partisans on one side or the other and you know without realizing the complexity of the, the human condition and the diversity of human beings, I, I kind of compare it to uh, diets actually. You know, like, for example, mm. like I, mm-hmm. I tend to function because of my genetic whatever profile. Um, you know, I, I tend to function really well on a low carb diet. Other people mm-hmm. may not, but I don't think that everyone should necessarily do what I'm doing. You know, and I kind of feel like people right. who are either, you know, staunch advocates for monogamy or trying to tell everyone that monogamy is best for everyone. And on the <laughs> other side, people saying the, the, the same thing. It, it, it just seems to me absurd and that's that's probably the main reason i wanted to talk to you today because i think this is important you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i agree i agree i mean especially when it comes to sex and diet is another good example nothing sexual is for everybody we're we're different people have different needs uh can have different uh abilities to deal with the different things and and you you're gonna you know 
casual sex can have benefits. It also has its risks. And depending on your personality, your interests, your environment, your past experiences, how thick your skin is, how good you are at getting the pleasure that you want out of these casual situations and, and how much how, how much you're driven by novelty. You know, some of us are very driven by novelty. And if you're one of those people, you're going to get a lot more pleasure out of these novel situations, out of, the, out of these novel people, even if the sex is not that good necessarily. Whereas if you're someone who doesn't get a lot of benefit, a lot of reward, like physiological brain reward for for novelty, then it might be more trouble than it's worth. And there's so many of these, these kinds of issues that will make you more or less susceptible to enjoy the benefits versus be harmed by the potential risks of, of casual sex. Because everything we do has risks to some extent, you know, uh, rock climbing has risks, yet a lot of people do them. Uh, a lot of people go rock climbing and deal with the risks. And for other people, it's like, nah, it's just not worth it. It's not, it's not exciting enough for me, or it's too exciting, <laughs> too scary for me to even contemplate it. And so I think of casual sex just like that. It's it's a somewhat higher risk activity. Right? Chances of getting hurt while, while rock climbing are zero if you never go climbing. Right. Chances are higher if you go climbing at your local gym, climbing gym. And then chances are much higher than than that if you go climbing in the in the wild right in the mountains and you'd go on alpine kind of mountaineering uh trips and so it's kind of the same you sex has no risks whatsoever if you never do it (laughs) it has somewhat higher risks if you do it with a single long-term partner it has more risks if you do it with casual partners that you know less uh, or not at all and and the more you do it, the more you do these higher risk activities, the higher risk, uh, the, the higher those risks are. But for some people, those higher risks carry higher rewards. And so it's all about who you are, what your needs are, and how good you are about mitigating the potential risks in the behaviors that you're engaging in. Let's talk about some of these risks. I mean, the obvious one that comes to my mind, and I'm sure most people listening, is STDs. But aside from that, sure. I mean, what what are the risks of casual sex as you see them? Like, what, what are the first things that come to mind? Well, so yeah, obviously the STI risk and unwanted pregnancies is, is the first one. Uh, other risks, <laughs> I forgot all about pregnancy. Yeah. My God, yeah. Yeah, That's yeah, kind there, of a big there's one. that. There's that too. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, depending on the kind of sex you're having and yeah. the kinds of genders that you're having sex with. But yes, that, that can <laughs> often factor in. <laughs> yeah. um, then you have things like, you already mentioned the slut shaming that can come with it, the social, uh, the social uh, ostracism, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that can come with it. Uh, it, it. One of the things that a lot of people complain about or worry about is lack of pleasure that when you're engaging with people who you don't know very well, they don't know you very well, uh, you don't necessarily have a lot of time to find, you know, what it is that you might like and the other person might like, that they're just not physically, sexually, they're not pleasurable. Then you have people being disrespectful to one another, either during or after the experience, because very often the way we conceptualized casual sex is that the people you're having casual sex with, they're not as as worthy of respect as, 
say someone that you might be interested in in romantic relationship with. And so that that can uh, bleed into how you treat those people as uh, not as as well as you might treat other people. Then you have um, issues around catching feelings when you don't want to be catching feelings for a particular person. I mean, catching feelings can obviously be amazing when it's reciprocated and you, and, and you want that to be happening, but then sometimes it can happen even when you don't want it. Um, what are some uh, other risks? I think those are the main ones. I, I'm sure I can think of. I can think of more. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that probably covers most of them. And speaking yeah. as, as personal uh, as personally or not as you like, um, you can speak more broadly. Like, what are some of the benefits as you see them? So the benefits are things like fun, right? Fun. It's important. <clears throat> it's important. <laughs> if this is something that is fun to you, as, as, as we said already, you know, it, it might not at all feel fun to you, but there are people for whom it's exciting. It, the whole adventurous piece of it that you don't know who you're going to get with, you know, so sex might be amazing. I mean, chances are it could be terrible as well, but it could be amazing, you know? And, and so, um, that aspect of it, a lot of the time casual sex happens in these kind of unexpected ways under unexpected circumstances. And so it makes for good stories. It makes for really kind of exciting, unexpected, um, experiences that, that some of us who are high on that, on that trait of, of sensation seeking and novelty seeking value quite a bit and get a lot of reward out of, then you could get pretty good sex. You could get experiences that you might not be able to get otherwise. You know, when you, when you have sex with one person over a very long period of time, it, the sex might be good, but it, it might also be limited in the types of activities that you might be engaging in because of that person's specific set of interests, desires, abilities, body parts, and all that. And so you can get a lot, lot more diversity in your sexual experiences in terms of skills and, and uh, activities that you get to engage in. For some people, it can also be easier to try something that's more risque in a casual context because the stakes are lower. If that person says, you know, if you're like, I want you to pee on me, and that person's like, ooh, gross, it's no big deal. You right. might never see that person again. Whereas if you say that to your long-term boyfriend, girlfriend, and they say, ew, gross, and that, well, that carries a lot higher stakes. They might end up breaking up with you because of that. And you know, your whole life might change because you express this one uh, non-traditional desire. Um, I think other other benefits are things like increasing uh, social networks and kind of making making friends, getting to know people and connecting with people on different levels and, and strengthening some of those friendships, especially for people who go about their casual sex experiences in a more friendly, respectful way. Don't don't necessarily look at I think there uh, people can often look at their casual sex exploits as experiences as more of like hunting exploits, uh, notches on the, on the bedpost kind of thing, or they can look at just making friends that has a sexual component to that uh, friendship. And, um, uh, yeah, so there's that. What else? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there are more, but those are, I think the main ones. <laughs> no, I think that, that, that covers a lot of, a lot of territory. So I'm just picturing, say someone listening to this, 
let's uh, let's say a young person doesn't matter male or female and they came to your office and they said listen like I'm I've never had uh, a lot of casual encounters uh, and this seems like it might be appealing to me what are some of the questions you might ask them like like is there a certain type of person who is best suited to more casual sexual sexual relationships or does it really come down to like what phase you're at in life it's a mix it's absolutely a mix of both these more stable i guess if you if you want to look at it stable personality traits which may have a, a significant biological component and then also where you're at in life in terms of stages where where you are growing up and what your community is so i would ask a series of questions and i do do this in fact you know <laughs> if people would like to figure out where they stand on their on their casual sex uh, uh, i don't know susceptibility or <laughs> to enjoy versus get harmed by it i, I do uh, these private kind of educational sessions and coaching sessions. And there's a set of questions that I would go through. The first, the first would be, is this, that, is this something that sounds exciting to you, right? Is, is having sex with someone that you might never see again, who you don't know very well and, or at all, and who might not, you know, you, you might never see again after that. Is that exciting? I think that's the key, right? Um, then I would ask about how good they are about getting pleasure in, in different sexual contexts. Because as I said, when you're having sex, I mean, the primary thing that you're getting out of these experiences is sexual satisfaction, or one of the primary goals for having casual sex is getting sexual satisfaction. And so, uh, but not all bodies and not all minds can get aroused easily and quickly and in without a lot of distractions. And uh, some people are not very assertive in asking for the kinds of things that they want. And I think in order to find these experiences pleasurable, and I think this might be even more uh, particularly important for women, they have to be to some extent in, in, in tune with their bodies, know what their bodies need, and then assertive enough to get that. Because you know, as we said, these are often partners that you don't know very well. They don't know you. They might not care much about you and your pleasure. It might be awkward. People are very awkward about talking about sex and asking about the things that they want or not want. And so you kind of have to have a certain level of assertiveness in order to get what you want. You know, let's, let's move this way. Put your hand here or, you know, uh, uh, let's let's move over there or you know go slower go faster you know, and all men, of those things you men like have that to get them. like men appreciate that a lot i think that's often lost in, in conversations like this yeah i often hear from women when i tell them this and they're like yeah but the guy's gonna feel like he's you know his ego is is mm. is hurt because he's supposed to know he's the man he's supposed to know and if i tell him what i want uh, then, then he's going to feel like he had, he didn't figure it out on his own. And what I hear from men, and I think to some extent that might be true. There might be some men out there. I mean, I'm sure there are who want to think like, I'm the man, I know it all. And every woman I ever you know, touch is just going to start having massive orgasms out of nowhere. Right. Well, I don't but, like to brag, but <laughs> <right>. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure that's true. Yes. <laughs> but I, 
from what I hear from men is the quite the opposite or the majority of men is quite the opposite. When they do end up with a sexual partner who is assertive and tells them what they what, what she wants, they're ecstatic. They're like, oh, my God, thank you. You know, finally, Absolutely. I don't have to <laughs> you know, feel like I, I, I'm in a, I'm a dark cave and I'm kind of feeling my way around it with no feedback whatsoever. I want feedback. It's great to be with someone who knows her body, knows how to come, how to make herself come or how to get me to help her to have an orgasm and have pleasure and so on. So I think that is really important. Is this something that you, you are, your, your body and, and also some bodies just take longer to get going. And, and if you only have a 10 minute thing in a, in a bathroom at the club, you know, it might not be as satisfying for you if you if you're someone who needs 30 minutes of foreplay, you know. And so there are both these kind of physiological differences between us and then also these assertiveness kind of psychological differences between us that I would I would ask people to to really think about. I would then also ask about uh, emotions and how how easily they get attached to people. That might not be the best idea uh, to get attached to some of us again for different reasons some of it some of it biological has we we tend to get infatuated with partners especially the sex was, the sex was good and uh, kind of intimate and all that and and so um uh, whereas other people take a lot longer uh, for that infatuation to kick in and so if you that might not be a deal breaker for ca having casual sex but you might if you're someone who gets infatuated quite easily then you might have to put in some additional kinds of uh, stopping mechanisms or how to prevent that from happening, how often you see the person or how much you, uh, how intimate you allow that experience to be and um, how, how much time you spend with them and so on. Um, then I would probably ask about their social environment and whether they'll be, how how ostracized or judged or bullied they might end up being uh, by other people in that in their environment if they engage in this, especially if they engage in this on a somewhat regular basis, and then how thick their skin is. You know, the same kind of person, one person might experience a certain level of, of bullying or social slut shaming and social ostracism for this behavior and be able to completely brush it off. And another person, that same amount of bullying might get them to commit suicide. So how thick your skin is, is also quite important in this. Um, yeah. There are a couple of other things, I guess, but yeah, well, these are the main things that yeah. I would ask. Well, no, that's great. And I think that's, that's a really, uh, that's a pretty exhaustive answer. And again, <laughs> I, I appreciate you doing this because maybe your perception is different. I, I haven't been, you know, full-time based in, in the West for a little while. Um, but it seems to me in many ways, I'm 30, so I guess that mm -hmm. qualifies me as a as a millennial, unfortunately. Uh, yep. <laughs> um, Why? What's wrong with millen being well, millennial? Well, <laughs> well, I mean, that's a good question. I guess I guess I I, I don't, I'm not crazy about the. I think like Gen X is cooler, you know, like the, the 60s hippies generation. I feel like that's <laughs> they had a lot more cool stuff associated with it, you know, like we're associated with being glued to our phones mm -hmm. and you know. This obs right, obsession right. with with social validation and stuff. Anyway, that's another that's another podcast. Um, because, but I, I think what you're doing is so important because I see a society that venerates um, all kinds of casual sex without 
having these nuanced discussions like you and I are having, saying mm-hmm. that it can absolutely be great for some of us and for others, it's probably not a good idea, you know, mm-hmm. um, or at least not in this particular, you know, moment in your life. And that's, I, again, I just mm-hmm. want to emphasize, I think that's, it's, it's important work that, that you're doing. As long as we're talking about millennials, I don't know if you can speak to this at all, but I've been seeing headlines and, you know, some of it's probably just clickbait, but studies coming out saying that our parents or my parents or whatever actually had mm-hmm. more sex than like millennials. Can you speak mm-hmm. to that at all? I mean, you work at a university. What, what do you have any idea? about that? <laughs> yeah. So this has been big paradox and it's not just clickbait. There are good studies well done with large nationally representative samples of the, say the U S population or the UK population finding this now, now there've been several, it's not just one researcher or one lab. Now we have several labs where that are finding the same thing with different data sets. And so I think it's not a fluke. Yeah. So I think it's not a fluke. It's not, you know, this one particular study got it wrong or, or something. I think it's a, it's a real trend. And the trend is that millennials are having sex with fewer partners they're having sex less often. They're more likely to still be virgins at, you know, their kind of late teens, early twenties than their uh, parents' generation. And uh, yeah, (laughs) it kind of, all of that seems to be pretty consistent findings across several different studies. I actually have on, on my podcast, uh, we interview, we do an entire hour with one of the researchers who's published several of these studies and and kind of trying to delve into, okay, what the heck is going on, right? And it's we don't actually have a very good answer yet as to why we're finding this and what exactly is going on. And, I, and pretty much everybody I've talked to in the academic world thinks that uh, there are a couple of different things potentially contributing to this. Uh, one is that there is more, well, there's more acceptance for sexual diversity of all kinds, including people who are not particularly sexual. So for asexuality or demisexuality and so on, uh, you know, people who really have no interest or desire to have sex with people until they are very uh, deeply committed uh, and, and, and emotionally involved with that's the general definition of demisexuality. And so that a lot of those people who may have in past generations be kind of not forced necessarily, but but uh, kind of self-coerced into having sexual and romantic relationships are now saying, no, I think I'm asexual and I don't really want to have sex or uh, feeling more empowered to say no. So I think part of the reason maybe um, is, is probably that. Then Another potential explanation for that is that today's generation is just too busy with a lot of other things that uh, educational requirements are getting you know, more and more uh, in order to succeed in life. And uh, there are so many more distractions like our phones, as you mentioned, and uh, social media and uh, you know, amazing uh, shows on, on Netflix and on Hulu. Oh, that's and whatnot. depressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that also uh, the availability of porn, uh, online porn, may be playing a role in satisfying many people's sexual needs to some extent in an, in a way that's easy, quick, that doesn't require 
you to go out, spend money, uh, be potentially rejected, uh, social awkward moments, uh, you know, have social socially awkward moments and all that. And, and that if, you know, if you satisfy your need in that way, then you don't need to satisfy your need in, in, a, with a real life partner and expose yourself to all the other potential risks that go with it. Uh, and then also that some of the, some of the hookup you know, the tenders and, and uh, Bumbles and all that of the world. I guess, I don't know, does Bumble qualify as a hookup? What's Bumble? Know. Anyway. <laughs> oh, it's just another another okay. dating app. Um, I'm out of the loop. But... <laughs> I'm not a millennial, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a millennial in, in northern Thailand. Exactly. So yeah. I don't know. Things are different <laughs> there. <laughs> the So... We, we there is some research coming out. Oh, and I, for, I actually forgot to mention this benefit of of casual sex when we we're talking about the benefits. But a lot of people mention feeling desirable and feeling validated as as one of the things that comes with with casual sex as well. That you know a lot of people might be finding you you, you get this validation from the partners who are having you know these casual interactions with you that they find you attractive and desirable and interesting and and all of those things. And that is, you know, good for the self-esteem. Everybody likes to know that other people like them and find them uh, attractive. And so the Tinders of, of the current world are also playing that role. So there are some research coming out now finding that there are a lot of people whose primary reason for being on apps like Tinder is to get that validation, to get that match that the person that they swiped right on that they said yes to I like you also found them attractive and that just gives you this jolt of of uh, of reward of self self-esteem validation and satisfaction and they don't necessarily need to or are interested in meeting with that person in real life so uh, or maybe they'll chat a little bit with that person and that chatting uh, is is providing some of that need satisfaction for human connection for validation, for a little bit of flirtation without having to, again, go out, spend money, spend time, spend uh, social capital, and potentially expose yourself, yourself to risks like STIs, bad sex, you know, sexual assault, uh, and, and, and so on. Unwanted pregnancies. <laughs> Unwanted pregnancies. Yeah, that minor <laughs> issue, yeah. Right. <laughs> I wonder, I mean, I'm totally, I have no idea, but I wonder if it is in some way related to testosterone levels dropping, because I, I've also read some studies that seem to indicate that among, among both men and women, testosterone is, is going down across the decades, which plays a, a critical role in obviously men's sex drive, but also women's sex drive. I wonder if it has something to do with that. Um, what, do you remember the name of the researcher? I'm going to look that episode up. Uh, the, that's one of the... First few, I'm, I want to say the first five episodes of the Science of Sex podcast, and the researcher's name is Brooke Wells, W E L L S. Uh, I forget what the name of the episode was, but it's definitely some sometime in the first in the first five or so. Well, let, let's take a minute to plug your podcast. Who who would benefit <laughs> uh, from listening to your podcast? What's what's the podcast about? So the podcast is called the Science of Sex podcast, and people can find it wherever they, they find their podcasts. <clears throat> and it's, 
I, I, we talk about, so it's a, it's, it's a podcast that I do together with a radio personality, Joe, who doesn't, he's, he's not an academic in the, in this uh, area, not a clinician. He's just a guy who is interested in sex. And, and we are kind of, uh, this, you know, the academic and the clueless, <laughs> the clueless dude who just wants to learn about sex, uh, and who also has a more traditional lifestyle in terms of like a long-term monogamous relationship, as opposed to, uh, Dr. Jana's crazy adventures. Uh, but we don't talk, talk about our personal stuff as much. It is, it is really about the science of sex. So our main thing is interviewing researchers who do the research, who publish the science. And each time we talk about either a particular study that they've published recently or uh, a broader topic that they've researched more heavily. And um, and that's kind of what we talk about. So it's for people who want to engage a little bit more with the science. It's, it's not uh, th- there are many podcasts out there about sex that are more poppy. that are more kind of conversational around uh, some of these these issues, <clears throat> more practical. This is this is more about delving into the science and understanding you know, some of the nuances of what, uh, the different issues are, but, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people who are interested in that, uh, will, will find it interesting. And it's a, it's a, a long form podcast as well. It's about an hour long, long, and we do some other before, before our, um, before our guests come on, we discuss some other kind of current relevant issues around the, the world of sex that are happening in, in, uh, in the world. Another project of yours I find really interesting is the Casual Sex Project. Could you tell me a little bit about that? <laughs> yes, the Casual Sex Project, which is basically a website uh, where people can post their true stories of hookups. And at this point, my God, I don't even know, we probably have about 4,000 stories, if not more, <clears throat> from people from all over the world who have submitted their stories their hookup experiences. And it's basically a repository of different hookup experiences. And that started about, I started that about four years ago when I came out of academia, I I finished my PhD, which uh, my thesis was on casual sex. And so that was a lot on my mind was thinking about some of, some of the ways that we talk about casual sex in, in our world, both in academia and outside of academia and how little, nuance there is about this topic that it was always very black or white it's either it's the worst thing ever or oh my god it's the best thing ever everybody everybody should be doing it and and also there was almost no voices out there sharing or talking about casual sex that were not college students a lot of the research that we had had was on college students a lot of the kind of the popular media writings about casual sex was about college hookups, college, it was all college hookups, college hookups. And so I was thinking, look, people who are not in college are also hooking up <laughs> and, you know, and not just in the U.S., people from all over the world who are not in college are hooking up at all ages. And also there is, I know there is this complexity and variety of experiences with casual sex that people have. And so I wanted to create a forum where people can show that people can and and people can go and see that there are these very varied experiences that people can have with uh, casual hookups from the most amazing sex ever to the worst sex ever to many blah kind of meh experiences that that also make up of uh, make make casual sex um, 
or make part of, of what casual sex can be. And that's what it is. It's, you know, people can go and, and post their own stories. People can perv on other people's stories. Uh, people can, I think some people are using it as masturbation fodder, but a lot of the time they're using it to just kind of see the, the diversity of what sexual experiences can be and feel like they're not alone, that other people have those kinds of desires and interests and, and experiences. How has your research, um, but also perhaps these other projects, but I, I guess I'm most interested in your actual academic research, how has it impacted your personal life or, or has it impacted your personal life? Yeah, I think there's definitely a bi-directional kind of uh, influence going on where, whereby my own personal life informs my research and then my research informs my personal life. <clears throat> I think in, in some ways I've become a lot more deliberate and aware of the kinds of things that I do and the you know, how I act and what drives my behavior. I, you know, often will, will think about the implications of some of the research on, you know, am I, am I doing this for the right reasons? Am I, you know, kind of, um, am I going about this particular, say, casual encounter or relationship in the, the best way possible? What I know is the best way possible from the research that I've done. So, yeah, I think it's definitely made things uh, probably better and more deliberate and has allowed me to kind of hone in my skill set, uh, both not, not, not so much the, the physical stuff, but the psychological approach that I take to these different experiences. What are, what would you say is the main question that's driving you lately? Like, is there something you're really trying to figure out or some impact you're really trying to have? Like what, what's driving you lately? I have been, so I, I was actually writing, writing a book about, about casual sex, about all of the stuff that we're talking about. And uh, it's, I kind of put it on hold. It was, it was not getting, getting the kind of uh, traction with the publishing houses that I wanted it to have. Uh, and lately I've started to think a lot more about the Me Too movement and consent and so I've done a, a few, a uh, couple of talks. I've, I've written a couple of articles about that. And so I'm, I've, I've been kind of engaged more in figuring out how to crack this, this new world of consent without taking things to an extreme, which I think a lot of people have taken things to that is just unrealistic and unattainable and frankly not desirable for a lot of people. I think that the pendulum has swung a little too far from the, you know, everything is okay pretty much unless the person is kicking and screaming and calling the cops on you to nothing is okay unless there's a written video agreement about every single <laughs> yeah. uh, sexual act that you are going to engage in uh, and and that is being verbally confirmed every 15 seconds kind of thing. And, <laughs> and everybody has to be completely sober and there can be no power differential between you and, you know, all of these things. And it has to happen in the designated flirting or sex zones like clubs and, or, uh, uh dating apps. And you cannot hit on anybody outside of those kinds of areas. And so I think, 
I think it's normal that that is happening as a reaction to the old model, which clearly wasn't working for a lot of people and resulted in a lot of unwanted experiences and pure sexual assault kinds of experiences. And so I think it's an overcorrection to doing things the way we were doing things for a very long time. But that other end of the spectrum isn't desirable and or realistic either. And so uh, I've been kind of thinking about, okay, how do we deal with some of those gray areas in ways that are realistic and are desirable for people? That sounds like it would be an extremely difficult project, but extremely valuable. <laughs> I, I really hope you pursue that because my God, yeah. is that is something like that needed right now? Yeah, um, we could talk for an hour about me too, and just the yeah, because yeah, I, I see I see a generation of young men growing up being terrified talking to women, and a generation mm-hmm. of young women growing up being really confused about just how to pr- approach this stuff. I mean, yeah, that, that, yep. that sounds, I, I don't want to do it, but <laughs> Godspeed, because I feel like that would be a bit of a landmine, but that, that's, yeah, that's, that sounds really intriguing. Yeah, it, it is a huge landmine. So, you know, maybe, maybe in a year or so I can come back on the podcast and talk about that and uh, how, how I've managed to tackle that issue. <laughs> that would be great. Yes. You have an open invitation. So <laughs> for the you. last uh, couple of minutes, I'd like to try something I've never done before. So you are officially my guinea pig. Mm. This is, uh, great. yeah, this is totally. I love popping cherries. <laughs> great. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, so this, I want you to finish these sentences with the first things that come to mind uh, and using <laughs> as few words as possible. This could be totally corny, but I want to try it. Okay. <laughs> okay. First thing that comes to mind as few, as few words as possible. Yes. The okay. trait the trait that I find the most attractive in intimate partners is uh, abs. <laughs> that was not a few words. <laughs> That's wonderful. I love how glib that answer was. That makes me happy. <laughs> I yeah, I have my shallow moment. That's great. No, that really made me happy. I own them. <laughs> okay, let's try another one. Above all, I would like to be remembered as. That's a hard one. Uh, Sexual pioneer. That's great. Yeah, I like that. Sexual revolutionary sounds better, but okay, pioneer would work too. Okay. (laughs) From from my last one. Okay, go ahead. Love is wonderful. (laughs) You sound so tentative. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful is great. Okay. Well, thank you for playing ball. That was fun. Um, I mean, yeah, there's so much to say about all of those things, obviously, but, uh, well, do you know the, uh, some some first, the, the Proust, uh, you know, the Proust questionnaire that feature in Vanity Fair where it's like similar, it's this interview format I like where there's, it's, it's similar, but thank you for playing ball. I appreciate, I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, Dr. Jana, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Zach. There you have it, my friends. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Jana. I had fun in case you can't tell. And a reminder that If you enjoyed today's chat and you'd like to learn more about Dr. Jana, you can go to humansandlove.com where you can find show notes and links to everything we talked about today. 
links to Dr. Jana's Casual Sex Project, links to the Science of Sex podcast, links to all the good things we talked about in today's episode. Before I let you go, uh, I'll ask you once more to please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. I say it every show, it might get annoying, but uh, I mean it when I say that those ratings and reviews are really important for getting word out about the show. Before I let you go, I'll remind you that life is short, far too short, in fact, for bad sex. Talk to you very soon, my friends. I'll talk to you next Tuesday, in fact. Thank you.